You are listening to the sermon podcast for Salem Presbyterian Church in Winston-Salem. Thanks for listening. To learn more about our church, visit salempresws.org. That's salempresws.org. We believe preaching is best when experienced as part of the larger drama of God's people gathering. Something spiritually unique happens when God's people are together. We meet each Sunday to let the liturgy shape us, to hear preaching, and to take the Lord's Supper. And these acts are more robust when done together. Join us Sunday evenings at 5 p.m. in downtown Winston-Salem at 600 Holly Avenue. Because it's Easter, we're looking at this passage from Corinthians about um, resurrection. And um, there are 2.38 billion Christians in the world today. Uh, And of those 2.38, if you draw a pie graph, you know, one of those round graphs, about half of them, almost right down the middle, are Catholic And then a little less than half are Protestant. The rest are Orthodox. Okay, so imagine that graph. Now, of the Protestants, you have 100 million Baptists. You have almost 100 million Anglicans, 90 million Anglicans. In the entire world, there are only 8 million Presbyterians. And our denomination is the tiniest, tiniest sliver of that pie chart with 375,000 strong in the PCA, all in America. Okay, so we are only one little thin slice of this giant pie, um, which you gotta be very humble when you're that small a slice of the pie. So I realize that, okay, that we are only one little player in this giant thing that is Christendom. Um, But at the perimeter, you know, all these different denominations and stuff, we disagree on things. We disagree on things like baptism, maybe predestination, what church polity is like, whether you have a pope or whether you have elders or whether it's just congregational. We have different views of the end times, you know, so we all disagree on the perimeter, but at the middle of the entire thing, okay, at the core of all churches around the entire world and all denominations, there is this thing that C.S. Lewis calls mere Christianity. And it is that, that people from Peter to, you know, Mary Magdalene, Perpetua, one of the early martyrs, Augustine, um, St. Teresa of Avila, you know, Martin Luther, Martin Luther King, Paula White, you know, who's the, who was the chaplain of Donald Trump. I mean, you have um, this wide array of people. In many ways, they don't like anything like each other. The people I just mentioned would disagree on so many things, a lot of political differences. But here's the thing. At the core, they all believe the essential same thing, which is this, that Christ has died for our sins. Uh, that Christ was buried and then three days later he rose from the grave and then he appeared to all these people. And that is the essence. That's the very short, short story that defines what Christianity is. And outside of that, you're outside of Christianity. So uh, Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, Muslims don't believe those things. So they're they're not part of that family. They're not part of that circle. But all the other different groups that believe those things, we're all one family. We're united in those beliefs. And that's called the gospel. So I want to look at that gospel. And then I want to look at the identity that comes from that gospel. And you saw that in the last part of this passage where Paul talks about himself in kind of a weird way. 
You know, he's like, I'm nothing. I'm the least of the apostles. I did work harder than any of them, but it's the grace of God working in me. And I want to look at that kind of identity created by the gospel that we see in Paul. And that hopefully those of us who are believers will also embody. So um, those are the two things, the gospel and the identity created by the gospel. There's a great song by Rich Mullins, who I mentioned a few weeks ago. Uh, It's called Creed. It's about the Apostles' Creed. And my favorite line is this. He says, I did not make it. It is making me. It is the very truth of God and not the invention of any man. And that's what that's what this thing that I just said was, you know, Christ died for our sins. He was buried. Uh, He was raised the third day. He appeared. Um, We didn't make that up, but it is making who we are. It is changing our identity at the most fundamental level. So first of all, the gospel. What is this thing uh, that we did not make up? Um, It is simply this. uh, I delivered to you as of first importance what I received. So Paul is writing this in right around 50 AD, you know, 20 years after the crucifixion and the resurrection. And he says he received this. So he received it from um, Peter. He didn't make it up. He got it from Peter. When he got converted, he went down to Jerusalem and he talked to all the apostles and especially Peter taught him. This is the essential truth of the faith. Uh, he says it is of first importance. And he received this thing from Peter and then he delivered it on to the Corinthians and the Corinthians received it and then they delivered it on to the next generation and on and on and on until we receive it now. It was delivered to us and we receive it now. It's the same truth though. Um, it uh, is the heart and soul of Christianity. It is of first importance. That means it is definitive, it is crucial, it is essential. It is of the highest importance. Um, And it was not like made up in this slow process of like a telephone game. You might know the telephone game where I receive a message and then I whisper it uh, to someone to my right. You know, kids play this game and they whisper to the next person on their right and it goes around and around and around and then it gets back up to me and it's like a completely different message. And some scholars uh, think that that's how the gospel was completely botched. So they think Jesus came and he talked about how he was this great rabbi. He talked about the kingdom of God. He was a great moral teacher. He died. And the people said that he rose and they started making up all this stuff. And the message got botched over generation, over generation, generation. And then in the end, suddenly, voila, you have him being talked about as the son of God. So Bart Ehrman is one who teaches at UNC. So he's nearby. Uh, Bart Ehrman wrote a book called How Jesus Became God. And you see right there the idea. Uh, it's the, the subtitle is The Exaltation of a Jewish Preacher from Galilee. So his thesis is that this legend slowly developed over time. But this passage says that there were hundreds of eyewitnesses who saw this at once. That it was received, it was received very quickly from right from Peter, who was an eyewitness, to Paul. From Paul to the Corinthians. The Corinthians were living when all these witnesses were alive. Verse 5 says he appeared to Cephas and then the 12 disciples and then more than 500 at once. Now, you couldn't make that up. It's not like the telephone game at all because you could easily double check these things. So, you know, imagine that, um, you know, one or two people say that they saw the Loch Ness Monster. And they like say, yeah, at the same time, we saw the Loch Ness Monster. Now, if one said it, you're like, eh. If two said it, Maybe. That's more interesting. But if 500 people on the shores of Loch Ness said, yeah, we all saw it at the same time, then you're really interested in that Loch Ness monster. Then, then you're really listening. 
And indeed, in this case, uh, 500 people at one time say they saw the risen Christ. But many, many more than that said the same thing. And any of these people from Corinth could have interviewed these people who saw that and confirmed, yes, this is, this is a fact. They were all still alive. So uh, I believe, and I think we are on proper warrant to believe, that this really did happen. If you're skeptical about really whether it happened or not, uh, this passage says, yes, it did happen. He received it. It is of first importance. He delivered it on. There were 500 eyewitnesses at once. There's very good historical reasons for believing this happened. And it's the, although it is a historical event, okay, it's based in history. It, it happened in 33 AD. It was passed on to this group in 54 AD. And although it happened in history, it's like this huge, you know, like a, a U-shaped, uh, they, like J.R.R. Tolkien, a great writer who wrote The Lord of the Rings, he called it a U-catastrophe. It's like a catastrophe like that goes plummeting down, but then it, the bottom hits like a U-shaped, and it rises back up. So what we have in history that occurred you know, in this place of Jerusalem, at this specific tomb, is like this cosmic story of God coming down and then like hitting the tangent you know, of line where, it, where he hits history. This great swooping down, he hits history, and then he rises back up the other side. He died for our sins. He was buried at the very bottom, and then he swoops back up. He was raised, and then he ascended into heaven. It's this great U catastrophe, but it lands at this one point, you know, in 33 AD in Jerusalem where he, he rises from this tomb. So he, he scrapes the very bottom of our existence. He comes down to the very bottom. He who was in the very form of God did not consider that equality with God, something he had to grab a hold of, but he emptied himself and came down and he made himself a servant and was born in the likeness of men. And he humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death on a cross. And then God highly exalted him and gave him the name above every name. So that in the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven, on earth, under the earth. That's, that is the gospel. He swoops down, he scrapes the bottom, and in one single moment, uh, like a trapeze artist, you know, coming down and rising back up, he saves the world. He plunges to the bottom of your misery and your corruption and your evil, and he raises it up. And that is the gospel story. He died for our sins. He was buried. He rose again on the third day and he appeared to all these people at one time. It's real. It's true. And it's for our sins. For, for the concentration camps, for the slave ships, for the brothels, for the suburbs of Kiev, for all the things human beings have done that are horrible to one another. You know, for all those things, he died. He died for that. He died to bring that into his own life, to swoop down, to get underneath all those things and to raise it all up and to redeem it all. And he felt it all. I mean, anything bad that anyone's ever felt, he felt it too. Um, all rejection, all betrayal. You could not be more rejected and betrayed by more loved people than, than he was. I mean, he loved these people to death and they betrayed him and they rejected him. He was tortured. He was abused. He was abused uh, probably verbally, physically, and sexually, likely. By those guards. Uh, he was screaming. He died. He went into hell. He experienced hell for three days in verse 4. He was buried. That's dead, dead. Not just barely dead, but totally dead. And he went down there to scoop up your, your darkest nightmare. Whatever you've been through, whatever you will go through, the worst thing you've ever been through, he, he came down underneath that to lift it up. And he, he brings that up into resurrection life. 
Our greatest tragedy is raised into resurrection life. And we're not talking about resuscitation. It was not like he was raised from the, from the grave like Lazarus and then died again. He didn't die again. He was resurrected into a new kind of eternal life. And all of those horrible things that happened to him, they were represented in his scars, in his hands, his side, his feet. All of the pain, all the tragedy, all of the horror. He took it into his life and he raised it up. And he will do the same thing with your life. The same thing. Every single human being, every single person that is tied to Christ is, is individually a you catastrophe. Where he saves the worst things about yourself and redeems them. There's a legend about Lake Tahoe. Never been there, but I came across this legend. Some of you have been there. Uh, it is a beautiful uh, lake that is a thousand feet deep. Uh, so it's really, really deep. Uh, it's really, really cold. It's in the mountains. Uh, it's 39 degrees, almost freezing in this lake. So uh, the, the legend is, they call this lake, sometimes some people call it the grave. Because the legend is there are tons of dead bodies at the bottom of Lake Tahoe. And, and the reason that's different from most lakes is because it is so cold and is so deep that the bodies, uh, they don't decompose and the gas that usually lifts the body up to the surface does not occur with these bodies. So just, they just plummet at the bottom. And nobody ever goes down there because it's so deep. And so the idea is that there are all of these dead bodies at the bottom of Lake Tahoe. And the image was, it just intrigued me, that idea of all these dead bodies at the bottom of this deep, deep lake, dark down there, uh, cold, freezing, you know, at this point frozen. No way they could be, there's no way those bodies could be brought back to life unless, you know, the Son of God goes down like a trawler and he hits the very bottom of that lake and he scrapes the whole thing and he gathers them all up in a net and he lifts them all up into heaven. And that's the claim of the cross. He died for our sins. He was buried. He went to hell. He rose the third day and then he ascended into heaven. He ascended with all of our depression and isolation, all suicide, all death. He raised it up. Uh, people sometimes say, uh, God could never know the pain that I'm going through. Uh, he could never understand the pain that I've been going through. And that's not true. Not if this is true. The, the story says, no, that God absolutely came down here to feel that pain, to be with you, to live with you, to experience that with you, and to raise that up and to redeem that. Uh, I'm reading the Brothers Karamazov, and in that book, there's a very famous passage where one of the three brothers is an atheist named Ivan. And uh, he says that the suffering of a single child could never justif be justified by no matter what happens in heaven. Like, not, not a single child's suffering could ever be justified by whatever happens in the afterlife. And Jesus says, no, I, I went down underneath whatever that suffering is. You know, all the world suffered. I went down underneath that to redeem that, to bring that up. And we don't know how God will do these things, but he does these things. Uh, you would never have guessed how he would do that with his own life, but he did. It was completely redeemed. What, what looked like the most horrific nightmare in the history of the world, the crucifixion of the Son of God, turns out to be the salvation of the world. And if that can happen, then why can't he redeem any story? Even a child's story. So that's the first point, the gospel. <clears throat> that's the story. Now, what does that have to do with me and you? What does that have to do with our identity? How is our identity locked into the gospel? Um, well, it's, it's simply this, that uh, we receive our identity. Uh, we don't make ourselves, like Rich Mullen said, we, 
It is making us. We didn't make up the story. We don't make up our identity. Paul says again, I would remind you of the gospel which you received and in which you stand. So you stand, your identity as a human being, your stability, uh, your psychological safety, if you will, is predicated on this gospel that we received. That we, we need to be reminded of this. We stand, our identity stands or falls on this gospel. And the, the identity is this. We're dead and buried with Christ and we're raised with Christ. That we are one with him. That is their identity. That we, uh, we didn't create these things. We received these things. Like a football player catching a pass. You know, we, this is what was given to us. Died with Christ, buried with Christ, raised with Christ, and ascended with Christ. And right now, even right now, seated at the right hand of God with Christ. That's what, that's what God says about me. Uh, Henry David Thoreau, who is in many ways like the, the prophet of America... Uh, he says that life is not about finding yourself, but creating yourself. And that is so central to American identity that I wanted to read it again. That life is not about finding yourself, but creating yourself. Look at any commercial. Well, not any, but many, many commercials, especially the sports commercials. You know, Nike, uh, Adidas, Reebok, or a lot of the tech commercials, Apple, Microsoft. It's a lot about creating yourself. I'm like, you can be anything you want to be. You can do anything that's possible at all with you. You know, nothing can stop you from being who you want to be. And that's Henry David Thoreau. Life is that you can create your identity. And I think that's very bad news. Even if that were true, which is not. Uh, you cannot be anything you want to be. You cannot create your identity. Um, you're given genes by God. You know, you're given parents. You're given an experience. You didn't have anything. You had no control over your, past, over your upbringing. So... Uh, not only is it not true, but it's, it's a terrible idea because if I have to create myself, my confidence is always fluctuating based on what I think about myself and what other people tell me about myself. That's a nightmare. I don't want to create myself. Paul says in verse 10, it is by the grace of God I am what I am. I am who I am by the grace of God. He tells me who I am. I don't have to tell myself who I am. I don't have to like... You know, jimmy up this self that is uh, strong and, and like I'm confident and uh, I can do this. I can pull myself up by my bootstraps and I can say who I am. The good news is I don't care what any one of you say about me. I don't even care what I think about myself. I am defined by God as someone who has died with Christ and raised with Christ. That's who I am. That he swooped down and picked me up and lifted me up to the skies. That's who I am. I love this statement from Paul in 1 Corinthians 4. Verse 3, he says, uh, It is a very small thing to me that I should be judged by you or by any human being. It, it, it doesn't matter to me at all what you say about me or any human being says about me. And then he says, In fact, I don't even judge myself. So you don't define me. I don't define me. God defines me. I am what I am by the grace of God. And that's really, really good news. Especially if you feel, if you feel terrible about yourself. You should just know that what you think about yourself is not the last word. It's not the verdict on who you are. It's what God says about you. And he says you're beloved. You're made in his image. Uh, you've been exalted to the skies. Your, your true identity is, is reigning with Christ at the right hand of God. I mean, how can you get more? Why would you want to create yourself? Because you can never get to that level of what God says about you. And this gives Paul this incredible combination, which I love, which is at the heart of a Christian identity. If you're a believer... This is, the, this is the identity that you get to have. It's on the one hand, like filled with confidence and power 
And Christians say things that sound almost boastful. I worked harder than any of them, Paul says. But on the other hand, Paul has this incredible ability to be humble and realistic about himself. And his self-appraisal is accurate. He does not have to defend himself. Um, He's unoffendable. He says, I am the least of the apostles, verse 9. I am unworthy to be called an apostle. I persecuted the church. And that's not shame. You know, people get upset about Christians where you're so filled with shame. You're always negative about yourself. You're so guilty and you're always talking about the terrible things you did. No, no, no. This is not shame. This is just simple reporting to the facts. I actually did do these things. Christians can actually say the things that are true about them. I am actually very proud. I'm an arrogant snob a lot of the times. Christians can say things like that. Paul really was horrible. It's not shame. It's clear-eyed realism. He's like, I did go around killing Christians. That is a fact about myself. I can face that. You know, a Christian can face the past no matter how bad that past is. We tend to deflect criticism and minimize what we've done wrong, maximize what somebody's done wrong to me. But, but Paul got out, you know, if, if Paul was critiqued, he would get out a notepad and he'd be like, tell me more. How can I change? And, and that's the humility that a Christian has because of this, again, because of the rescue operation of God. The you catastrophe. You're dead and buried at the bottom of Lake Tahoe. Of course you can say whatever is bad about yourself. But because he's so humble, he can also be incredibly confident. And because he's so confident, he can be humble. They go together completely. He knows his identity is not his to create. I am by what I am by the grace of God. He is not a self-made man, which is also an idea created by Americans, by Henry Clay, a senator from Tennessee in 1842. He made a speech where he says, I am a self-made man. That's where we get this idea of the self-made man. Uh, We are not self-made. Absolutely not. We are made by grace. I like in Star Wars, very early scene in Star Wars, first, the very first one made, where um, basically Princess Leia is generated by R2-D2. You know, Luke hits that little program and she pops up. It's like this hologram. And she is like, help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi. I can't remember exactly what she says, but um, somebody will correct me afterwards. Something about, help me, you're my only hope. You know what I'm talking about? That little digital generation of Princess Leah. We are generated by the grace of God. We are sustained. We are not self-actualized. We are actualized by the, the very thoughts about God. He is, I am who he thinks that I am. Nothing more, nothing less than who God generates me to be. And again, in verse, in verse 10, he says, I worked harder than any of them. It's like, which are you the least of the apostles or are you the hardest working? And he's like, both. Absolutely both. Total humility, total confidence. He's not boasting at all. He's simply rejoicing in the power of Christ within him. He says that by grace, his grace towards me was not in vain, verse 10. In other words, his, his grace in me was effective. It was effectual. It got the job done. Imagine telling your coworkers, uh, I work harder than any of you. By the grace of God, I work harder than any of you. Or your fellow students, uh, teammates, yeah, I, I, I work harder than any of you. Yeah, it's just true. It's a fact. By the grace of God, you know, that would not go well. But Paul did work harder. He, he traveled more. He preached more. He suffered more. He was constantly up and at everything, every day, every morning, preaching the gospel, suffering. He did work more. And he's not afraid to say that. Because he says in verse 10, it was not I, but the grace of God that is in me. So, you know, we can actually say things like, and we need to practice this because uh, Christians are not good at this, especially Presbyterians. 
Uh, we try to be so modest and humble that we don't say things like this. But you should say, by the grace of God, I'm a really good listener, if you're a good listener. Or by the grace of God, I'm really fast. I can run really fast. Or by the grace of God, I um, am a really, really good musician. Um, Michael Anderson, by the grace of God, is a great piano player, for instance. Um, I am a great athlete. I'm a great parent. I'm a great student. I am really talented at writing. I'm an excellent healer. You know, whatever it is, I'm a good counselor. Take whatever your job is or what you do well. We should be able to say like Paul. Paul says, I worked harder than any of them. That was simply true. He worked harder than any of them. He really did. And you should be able to say, I am the best, you know, philosopher of anyone I know. Um, I am the best whatever. I am good at what I do. By the grace of God. You know, if Christ, if the glory of Christ is defined by the amplitude of that you, you know, the, the, the size of that thing. If the, if the bigger it is, the more he is glorified, then, then we can, um, the depths of his descent, the heights of his exaltation, we should do both. We should talk about the problems we have, and we should also talk about the greatness of our lives. And we can apologize for our anger one second, and the next second, glory in our generosity. We can admit that we're smart, and then we can repent for being a snob. And this table is where we celebrate both. We, we raise a toast, you know, to the new identity that we have in Christ. Because at this, at this table... Remember, we love these rascals.